Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. How's it going? Uh, you know, it's been quite a week. Yeah, it truly has. We, uh... Got some fun links this week for everybody. We got a fun nerd alert. Little preview. It's about wingdings. I yeah, wingdings. wingdings. You've talked about wingdings since I knew you, since we first met. I feel like this was your time to shine. I think my subhead on my website and on my business cards in college was wingding enthusiast. It was like letter mm-hmm. lover, wingding enthusiast. I've noticed that on your Twitter or something. Oh, I bet it's still on my Twitter because <laughs> I, I truly am. I've been using Wingdings since the moment I started my graphic design degree. I remember the specific project I did my sophomore year, which I still have. It was a book and it was a collage of cowboys from this magazine with diamonds and Wingdings. It was like super random, but heck? it's still one of my favorite things I've made. Just surprising, but um, big fan, big fan. I found out today that the Type Directors Club is merging with the One Club for Creativity. Yeah, you know, I saw that news and I didn't really know what to make of it. I mean, if you aren't up to date with the Type Directors Club, it's quite an institution that is kind of like the elite of the type design industry assembled as a board of directors of everyone kind of thing. Fairly recently... They were called out for being really biased and exclusive. It wasn't a fun time for the people involved. And they were kind of like, shoot, you're right. We need to rethink the way that this works and how we help people. Uh, so now they're coming through being like, hey, this is this is the new version of what we'd like to do to be better. I don't really know what to make of that. Well, after that article came out, just about their very exclusive traditions, I think they announced that they were like basically bankrupt, right? Like they announced, yeah. So I think this also is probably maybe possible for them to stay alive fiscally is a reason why they're merging. Hmm. But like, I don't know about you, but Type Directors Club is like a very nerdy type community. I don't necessarily think of like one club is so nerdy. I think of them as like a little bit like glitzier. Like they have that like competition. See, I, I don't know like, one club. I only know them because all the ad agencies that win a one club award will be like, we won a one club award and they get this little pencil trophy. It's always in their lobbies. And it's like a little bit like a stroke of an ego for the <laughs> ad agencies where I feel like the type directors club is much more just straight up type nerds that love talking about the terminal of the A in the Vanity Fair logo for two hours. <laughs> you know, I guess I so. was never, I, you know, I kind of didn't buy into either one of them here. So like I was never super curious about what the type directors club did. I remember the first time I knew about them, I knew that they th- they held salons, which is like such an old school term for just like, saying they're holding a discussion or like a panel or participants of the club can get involved like salons i think of like Marie antoinette era happenings and like yeah see i feel like you have to have a certain elitism to even know what that means like if you told me that i'd be like i you're you're so you're going to like get your hair done i don't know what to tell you 
Oh, yeah. No, it's it's funny, that vernacular. Anyways, tell us your thoughts, if you have any, about this merger. That's the news there. Big thank you to Matt Hughes, one of our listeners. So last week, we talked about the history of monospace fonts and why they're used on typewriters and why they're used in programming. And he actually came back with us because we asked, you know, are you a programmer? Are there specific reasons why you love using monospace fonts. And he sent us a message um, through our email. Thank you, Matt. Some reasons he loves mono space or mono with fonts is because of navigating. And when he's navigating through his programming text editor, he wants to know that if he does a down arrow on his keyboard, he will land in the same exact place, maybe six lines below. And it actually like helps him, you know, just easier workflow for staying organized. Instead of writing an essay on like say Microsoft Word, you're more worried about spending so much time writing big blocks of text. But he thinks that he actually spends a lot of time editing and navigating through the text that he has written. And so in that sense, monospace fonts really take him to an advantage of always knowing, oh, I'll jump down a line and I'll still be 10 characters in this specific line of code. It's not moving based off of the portion of the text. I thought that was a nice insight. That's a very interesting perspective that I think I maybe just always took for granted. I never even considered that. I think also yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people who jumps word to word. You know, when you mm. like hold down alt and hit left or right, you can jump to the beginning and ending of words. And so I'm just like jumping between words and not paying attention. But there's probably countless times in my life of doing that when I unintentionally landed on the same spot and just took it for granted. What a neat insight. I love that. I thought that was, you know, super helpful. And I don't know. I love when our listeners get to like participate in our conversation. I'm yeah, awesome also that. awesome just to get some email and some thoughts from somebody. So like, hey, if, if anybody has any other cool things to share, you should email us more because we will talk about it and it's fun. Please do. All right, Micah, ready to get started? Heck yeah. Okay. First link is the right way to use fonts in mobile apps. This is a super comprehensive article about the nitty gritty details of typography that you need to take for granted when designing for mobile. And, you know, I think I'm certainly get an education every time we have articles about these because I rarely design for mobile. But talking about, you know, what point sizes you should be using for your text, what line spacing they recommend. I think it's interesting they talk about headings for text in your hierarchy. Because they're on mobile, they only usually have one to two words per line, if you think about it, because they're mm-hmm. so limited. So, you know, think about making your headlines more concise if you're particularly using something on mobile. They talk about minimum font size is really important because there's associations with screen size and even sun glare on a mobile mm. phone. I never think about sun glare when I'm designing, but yeah, that makes things less legible and makes the designer task to make something a little bit more clear and easy to read. So lots like of great if you don't have here. a strong enough contrast even in your color combinations, let alone even like font sizes or whatever, that's a thing to think about. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting. They mentioned at the very end, reduced screen real estate in the form of mobile devices and the culture of haste hardly complement experimental typography choices for mobile apps. Mm. So, you know, I think you even mentioned that maybe last week or the week before. I think, yeah, we were talking about book covers and how like book covers are meant to be this very experimental poetic thing in contrast to digital products or something like mobile design, which should be a little bit more predictable so the user can easily navigate it. Yeah, and especially even more so on mobile, I think, because mobile is such a, uh, a lot of people's main computer. 
at this point yeah. in, in the timeline. Yeah. I do have to point out, I, I also thought this was cool just because it was like an intro reminder to some of the terminology with visuals, you know, what you need to know about typography, what line length and line, line spacing means, what kerning is and tracking. There's like nice, rememberable visuals for those kind of things. I do have to point out, this is such a pet peeve. I otherwise love this article. They describe the difference between typeface and font as what Olivia, you and I have proven to be no longer accurate definitions. And so this is a thing, this is actually, this actually came up in the book that we uh, have been talking about for weeks and weeks, right? About font licensing. Yes. Of the difference between a typeface and a font. And it used to be that a font was described like back in the days of setting type by hand with lead, that a font was uh, a particular size, style, uh, weight combination. And that's what originally the word font meant. And now that's kind of no longer as relevant, barely mm -hmm. relevant at all, to be honest. And so the difference that we always describe, just for anybody wanting a sweet tip here today, is that I, I like to think of it as a typeface is the idea of the drawings. If you were to just consider the drawings as lines on paper, this is what the concept of my idea for this font would look like. We call that the typeface. And then the font is the software file where you like take those drawings, turn it into code that you can render on a computer, package it up in a font file and deliver it. And, and that's what we call the font. And if we, you know, zoom out big picture, like the font is ultimately the vessel in which you're able to use the design, which is the typeface. And so, you know, once again, once upon a time, maybe the definition was it was a certain size and, you know, style when you're talking about physical type, but it's just, it's just easier to remember it now. Oh, it's a vessel. Oh, therefore it's software. You can license a font. You can't, in most cases, license a typeface. And I, you know, it's interesting because they do mention licensing in this when they're talking about custom typography in the mobile app. So, you know, just, just a little reminder for everybody. Yeah. I love an excuse to throw in a quick definition. So fun. Okay. Our next article is by Letterform Archive, which they are a physical archive. They now have this online archive, which is really, really high-res photos of their physical archive, their physical archive that has just thousands of printed ephemera and graphic design and calligraphy, anything that has to do with letterforms. They have an archive of it throughout you know, several centuries. This article is actually about how they digitally captured all of their lettering, typography, printmaking, and graphic design work. Their online archive is like a recent endeavor. I think they started it back maybe in April or May. It's beautiful. You guys should check it out. We've talked about it before here on the podcast, but they talk about how they've captured all the nuances of this ephemera and, you know, how they didn't do scans. They actually use very high-end camera equipment and sensitive staging and lighting um, and use high-res files so they can capture as much as possible, make it as lifelike as possible. Every single item they capture requires a different setup because they like to make sure if something doesn't totally have rectangular edges, that they get the nuance of maybe the book spine just flares out just the tiniest bit. Um, and they can capture that in their setups. You know, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of designers, if you do printed work, have to find a good way to capture the work that you've created. I certainly have had those situations of, you know, I made this book, what's the best way to show it? 
I'm still trying to figure this out. And this was definitely helpful in many ways. It's a very visual piece too, where they, they really show you animations, not quite like a whole video about it necessarily, but like animated GIFs kind of demonstrating the process and watching someone actually do it. And it's just interesting. Yeah. Really fun. Um, and they have some examples of the work that they have archived at the bottom. And they have some really, really old manuscripts and it literally feels like you could reach into the computer and touch this. It's incredible. <laughs> really loved this. On to the next one. This one's really bonkers, mind-blowing article. <laughs> it was how to use face motion to interact with typography. Sounds crazy, but the technology has been developed for this for your face to get recognized by your computer's camera, by your phone's camera, and the text in whatever you're reading adjusts because of where your face is. So that seems kind of abstract. I think a really good example of this is how if you're reading on your phone, depending on where you are, your phone might be closer to your face or farther away from your face. Mm -hmm. And there's technology that can make text optimal for wherever your face is in comparison to the screen you're reading on. And obviously optimal is still subjective at this point, but it's sort of using that data from your camera system to make adjustments or to give you the ability as the web designer in this instance to make adjustments, which is just kind of crazy. So this is a very techie article. There's literally a, a bunch of code in how to set up the machine learning software and stuff like that. But even for the people who are not writing the code to do an experiment like this, it's still interesting, I think, to see that we are now at the point in tech where anybody who feels like messing around with it can load up some machine learning software to gauge how far away the computer thinks your face is and then adjust the readability from whatever method you want to do that with by that technology. That's crazy. Yeah. Especially compared to the last article about <laughs> photographing pieces of history in detail document like what people from 300 years ago were designing. What a cool contrast. It's, it's really kind of, I feel like we're traveling centuries and into the future between right. both of these articles. Um, so definitely fun. I mean, I'm not like on the techiest code side of things and I still found it pretty interesting. There's some really great ideas in here and concepts that, you know, I think we're going to be taking into the future. And there was a tiny, tiny link embedded in the middle of this where they were talking about the term microtypography. Mm -hmm. And that links to this Wikipedia page defining what microtypography is, which I think is like a whole underappreciated category of nerd, where it says, you know, the definition defined here is like microtypography is the name given to a range of methods for improving the readability and appearance of text, especially justified text, which is very mm. interesting because especially like computers, how, how do I say this? Things like browsers, I should say browsers actually. Browsers don't have good technology yet for justifying text. Mm -hmm. I can't say computers because like InDesign does. Like there are <laughs> algorithms yeah. to help you justify text in a great way. But I don't know, I think the whole category of like microtypography, like adjusting the readability of these tiny pieces of text in an interface usually on a device that you don't even think about is fascinating to me. I love it. 
So cool. Now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. If you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. At the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. Our next article, so fun, never gets old. It's a classic. It's your typography anatomy cheat sheet. This was a really fun link because it's interactive. So they have different parts of your type anatomy highlighted. And every time you click one of these pieces of anatomy, it tells you what it is. So it tells you things like the eye of a lowercase e or what a counter is or an aperture or a stem or even the tittle. They mentioned the tittle. Why? Why can't we find a different name for this? Um, anyways, it's very detailed. In fact, they have typographic terms that I never use in my day-to-day uh, -day life that I think are sometimes excessive, but the ones that everyone learns, it's like the crotch of the Y, you know, where all the lines meet in that letter. It's good to have things like this because you just don't have to remember all of these detailed things. Like, remember a few that you use a lot and the rest just look up, right? Yeah, like I love the bowl of the A. That's definitely a word I'll describe. Um, but like the beak of the serifs on an uppercase T or on the finishing serif for an S, like, I don't know, that's just serif or maybe a terminal. I, I don't know. I like that they distinguish between like head serif and serif. Okay, you know, that is like true. Like that is two different things you'd be designing. The craziest one that I have to argue against is the finial for a lowercase e. It's like where the lowercase e ends. Just call that a terminal. Interesting, yeah. The one that I did think was really interesting that I did kind of know is like apex is a description for kind of the very top of a letter, like yes. the top of a T, or they also have it described here as the very top of a capital A that just kind of juts out. It's the very top of one of these serif letters. One thing I didn't know until this cheat sheet was in the lowercase w, right in the middle, underneath where the two triangles connect, they also call that an apex. I mean, you I probably was surprised. have to click it to, to see that, to see what I'm talking about. But I didn't know that. If yeah. I was given this as a pop quiz, I might get like a 60%. Mm, might like you remember that pass. game? There was a game like seven years ago. Wow, that sounds old. But somebody cool in like Argentina or Chile or something like that made this neat game out of this. And you would have oh, we to We should guess. find the game. Yeah, I'm going to have we to find it. We should include it. it. Next, next week, guys. Yeah. Watch out. 
All right, and we're going to finish up this week's links with a lovely article um, from AIGA's blog, Ion Design. And that is a font family inspired by the beefy, yeah, that's right, I said beefy, <laughs> iron letter forms on manhole covers. This is called Municipal, and it's by House Industries. It's a new typeface designed by House Industries, Ken Barber, Quentin Schmerber, a production type. And they just got like a bunch of different type production teams on this. And they, there's a lot of credits here. So I thought that was interesting. It was kind of a combined effort. Um, the Foundry is House Industries. But it just got released in August. Municipal is a chunky slab serif with beefy letter forms. <laughs> and that, I mean, like thick boys. <laughs> um, I suddenly want like a, like a meat stew after reading this. Right. And it's so funny because it's inspired by manhole covers. Mm, that is cool. So it's, so that, you know, it's not usually like a common inspiration, but I think it kind of makes for a pretty unique typeface. And it says that they were looking at, they're referencing 19th century type specimens, vintage hand lettering, but also iron foundries to see how manufacturing methods influence final products. Mm, that's such a neat detail. Yeah, yeah, I was super into it. They have a bunch of different weights of this, so I, I definitely think the thicker weights feel quite different than the lighter ones. They also have like a patterns font included which I love a good patterns font. <laughs> I really like the kind of three-dimensional version that they include. Ooh, ooh, yeah, that is nice. That it's is nice. Fun. So I'll be taking a look out for this font when people start using it. Maybe I'll see it pop up in fonts and use. They have a really fun ampersand, I've got to say. Great ampersand. So anyway, that's a cool one. Super exciting, great find. And I think we had a good variety of articles this week. Talk about some type design, from documentation of type works, and future type. So, Micah, it's, it's about that time. I'm excited. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, come on. It's nerd alert. <laughs> All right, guys. We are talking about the origin story of wingdings this week. If you follow the newsletter, we have a nice article from Vox about the history of wingdings. Um, they did a very extensive research into this, and they made an article but also a video, which is great. And, like, a lot of the research I found referenced the research that Vox did in, like, 2016. So... Definitely check it out if you're interested. I also have a wonderful oral history that I'll be giving to all of you listeners today. So, wingdings. They are like the predecessor of the emojis. I remember we had like maybe 20 fonts on my computer growing up, and one of them was wingdings, and everything just shows up in icons, and everyone thinks it's like funny for five seconds, but no one sees any use for it when you don't know much about typography. I mean, I can't tell you how many posters I made as like a 12-year-old child in Microsoft Word with wingdings as clip art. Which is funny because wingdings were essentially like the earliest form of clip art. Wingdings were developed, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s by Charles Bigelow and Chris Holmes. They were the designers of the font Lucida, which was like the font that was everywhere for a while. Love that. Um, we should definitely dive into that one day. Um, and so they were crafting type that was designed for the digital era. And wingdings was one of those fonts. But Wingdings, actually, interestingly enough, was not the font to start with. The original fonts were three separate fonts called Lucida Icons, Lucida Arrows, and Lucida Stars. And they were part of the Lucida package. But eventually, 
Microsoft bought the rights to the Lucida icons, arrows, and stars in 1990 and combined it into a single font called Wingdings that was included in the beta test of Windows that year in 1990. They loved Wingdings because storage size was limited on computers and there was like a bunch of characters within just Wingdings. You could type them out and have accessibility to them. And so it really came from technological limitations, this set of icons, which I have to say really hold up. I mean, I use Wingdings all the time these days and there's some adorable smiley faces and thumbs up and peace signs and stars. And I still feel like they are timeless. <laughs> I just got to say. I still I still love those. Yeah. I mean, I was using them the other day to promote my class that's coming in November. So got to check that out. Because <laughs> you are the queen of wingdings still. So I am still the queen of wingdings. Mm, you can try to dispute me, but I don't know if that's happening. Um, <laughs> I'll fight anybody. <laughs> but a really fun fact about wingdings is that... Wingdings has a reason why it's called Wingdings. Mm. It's a combination of the old printing term dingbat and windows. Oh, what? I would not. That was a fun plot twist. I did not, because I knew dingbats, like that's a common term, I think, that lots of people have heard of. But I did not realize Windows put their little window stamp on it. Right. A hair flip from you. Yeah, I just did a hair flip, everybody. Very exciting news. It's like a great combination for windows and dingbats, but also what a fun freaking word. It's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. That's half the reason why I love wingdings. Um, so what are dingbats, you may ask? Dingbats have been around for centuries. They go back to old metal printing and they were actually ornamentation characters to add to title pages of books um, and stuff like that. So if you want to do like a section marker in your book, you put a piece of ornament Dingbats made it easy to just slide it into your typesetting tool, print it, or make little patterns around the edges of your books. You could do that with dingbats. Mm. There's like a couple different origin stories for the word dingbats. I mean, since we're here, one of them was that the ding came from like the Dutch term for thing. And then the other one was that ding is what the metal type sounded like when it crashed on the floor. Ding. <laughs> you drop it? Yeah, that's like my, that's, I'm going to believe that one. <laughs> We're going to choose a favorite here. That's super fun. Uh, Let's see. There's been a lot of conspiracy theories around wingdings. People think there are hidden messages in wingdings. And there's even a really popular conspiracy theory that showed up because if you type out NYC in wingdings, you would get a skull, a star David, and a thumbs up. So people thought that wingdings was anti-Semitic. Clearly, Microsoft definitely was like, that is not who we are. That is <laughs> totally random. And they like denied all of it. Then I think with Wingdings 2, oh no, with Webdings that came out after the Wingdings came out. Mm-hmm. Webdings was designed by Vincent Conair, who designed Comic Sans, just saying. <laughs> um, I think they did, for NYC, they did like an eye and like a heart and a skyline oh that's cute yeah so you know what are the symbols in wingdings well there's like a bunch of symbols there's pointing fingers and that goes back to like medieval manuscripts i think those are called manicules interesting Um, yeah and so like that actually references really old manuscripts were they used to point at things yeah it was used to i think help guide the reader's eye from what i read about these manicules fascinating 
I know they're seen on signage too. When you like go to a restaurant that has like vintage signage, sometimes they have the hand pointing like bathrooms this way. I guess that's true. Um, and so, and even for attention of like fresh whatever you know yeah yeah exactly um so they kind of like help guide your eye there's also other icons and wing dings there's keyboards and computers that you know are nod to 20th century inventions are part of office life as well and so expand centuries there's florons which were printing marks and decorations from centuries ago so it's kind of like lovely to see that there's meaning behind everything and you know there wasn't just wing dings there was wing dings two there's wing dings three I think I have them on my computer. I think we all have them on our computer, to be honest. Um, I did a quick search for them right before this. And so I think Wingdings 2 had like more icons and then Wingdings 3 was mostly like arrows or something like that. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because we use emojis all the time now. And I think that has ultimately been the evolution for wingdings. I feel like I don't really see wingdings very often, to be honest. And, and even when you go to Wikipedia, they list out the wingding icons that are included in the font. And a lot of them are read by Unicode and then rendered as Apple emojis. So mm. I don't know. Check that out for yourself because I thought that was a little disappointing, to be honest, because wingdings are wingdings because they're not emojis, but their Unicode characters are actually read differently now. Well, you know, I'm sure... In inventing emojis and putting them on the platforms, it was intended to be like, here's a here's a new take on wingdings. And so they considered it sort of a replacement, even if it could be supplementary. That's true. That's that true. that just made me realize you might enjoy doing a nerd alert one of these days about the complexities of the Unicode consortium. Oh. Heck yeah. We should totally Unicode do that. That would be just crazy. Unicode's we, wild. we know somebody who is on the board of the unicode consortium wow uh, matthew rex he's wow. kind of a twitter friend and wow. uh very smart dude he's a fellow type nerd amazing what a cool opportunity to be on that board and like determine but like uh, i don't think a lot of people know that that is a thing i didn't know it was a thing there's like a group it. of people who decide what new unicode emojis should exist well, Unicode in general just blows my mind. Unicode has characters for cuneiform in it, which is like how people used to write when there wasn't writing utensils and you had to like imprint little slabs of things inside of clay. It is like so old. <laughs> it is, it's, I, I love Unicode and all they do. Well, that would be a fun thing to talk about at some point. We should, we definitely should. I, I mean, I had so much fun talking about wing things, and I feel like I just covered the tip of the iceberg. There was a whole other conspiracy theory that I didn't even go over in this. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, you can't tease that. Well, what it would, uh, before we go, just tell <sighs> okay, us. Okay. I think, I don't know if it was which wingdings that it was. I think it was like wingdings or wingdings 2. But if you typed in Q33, which people claimed was the flight number of one of the planes that crashed, in 9-11 you got like a plane crashing into two sheets of paper but the sheets of paper look like the twin towers oh that's absurd but it was debunked because that wasn't even the flight number and like it came it existed beforehand yeah yeah so people were just were just searching for theories at this point but i don't blame them but come on guys so yeah that's my little origin story for wingdings uh i hope you had a good time I hope you have a newfound appreciation for wingdings because I sure do. And I already love wingdings. Well, I think it was fun. I am happy you got to research it. Me too. 
Um, and I think there's a lot of fun facts for people that aren't necessarily type nerds because like you just gotta know what wingdings are to enjoy what I just chatted about. Sure um, which I'm pretty sure most of us do, except I don't know, do Gen Zers know what wingdings are? That's a great question. They we must. have a consultant, so we'll ask her later today. <laughs> I mean, Gen Zers are much smarter than a lot of older people give them credit for, even though they grew Probably. up in an era where maybe wingdings wasn't super popular. I feel like they appreciate stuff like that. Oh, they totally do. We'll have to go. I'm a cusp millennial Gen Zer, so I shouldn't even be acting like I'm above this. <laughs> I'm, I'm nowhere near a Gen Zer. <laughs> I'm 1,000 years old. <laughs> Like it's just that's how that's why you're here talking about type history. That's how I got you to join me. He actually invented typography. <laughs> you were there when Dingbats was uh, born and decided what it was going to be. Called. I gave it the name. <laughs> that's that how old I am. Thrilled. All right, guys, another great episode. There's going to be more great episodes coming the following weeks we have an interview coming up so if you love our interview series we have a really exciting guest um, Ooh, yeah. i personally cannot wait for that <laughs> but thanks for tuning in if you have any things you want to chat with us about like we're always um available via instagram twitter email come talk to us let's chat olivia you're the best thank you you are the best and ciao everybody bye, bye.